Chapter 34 of The Uncommercial Traveler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ginger Cucolo. The Uncommercial Traveler by Charles Dickens. Chapter 34. A great reader of good fiction at an unusually early age, it seems to me as though I had been born under the superintendence of the estimable but terrific gentleman whose name stands at the head of my present reflections. The instructive monomaniac Mr. Barlow will be remembered as a tutor of Master Harry Sanford and Master Tommy Merton. He knew everything, and didactically improved all sorts of occasions from the consumption of a plate of cherries to the contemplation of a starlight night. What youth came to without Mr. Barlow was displayed in the history of Sanford and Merton, by the example of a certain awful master-mash. This young wretch wore buckles and powder, conducted himself with insupportable levity at the theatre, had no idea of facing a mad bull single-handed, in which I think him less reprehensible as remotely reflecting my own character and was a frightful instance of the enervating effects of luxury upon the human race. Strange destiny on the part of Mr. Barlow, to go down to posterity as childhood's experience of a bore. Immortal Mr. Barlow, boring his way through the verdant freshness of ages. My personal indictment against Mr. Barlow is one of many counts. I will proceed to set forth a few of the injuries he has done to me. In the first place, he never made or took a joke. This insensibility on Mr. Barlow's part not only cast its own gloom over my boyhood, but blighted even the sixpenny jest-books of the time. For, groaning under a moral spell constraining me to refer all things to Mr. Barlow, I could not choose but ask myself in a whisper, when tickled by a printed jest, What would he think of it? What would he see in it? The point of the jest immediately became a sting, and stung my conscience. For my mind's eye saw him stolid frigid, perchance taking from its shelf some dreary Greek book, and translating at full length what some dismal sage said, and touched up afterwards, perhaps, for publication, when he banished some unlucky joker from Athens. The incompatibility of Mr. Barlow with all other portions of my young life but himself, the adamantine inadaptability of the man to my favorite fancies and amusements, is the thing for which I hate him the most. What right had he to bore his way into my Arabian nights? Yet he did. He was always hinting doubts of the veracity of Sinbad the sailor. If he could have got hold of the wonderful lamp, I knew he would have trimmed it and lighted it and delivered a lecture over it on the qualities of sperm oil with a glance at the whale fisheries. He would so soon have found out, on mechanical principles, the peg in the neck of the enchanted horse, and would have turned it the right way in so workmanlike a manner that the horse could never have gotten any height in the air, and the story couldn't have been. He would have proved, by map and compass, that there was no such kingdom as the delightful kingdom of Kaskar on the frontiers of Tartary. He would have caused that hypocritical young prig Harry to make an experiment, with the aid of a temporary building in the garden and a dummy, demonstrating that you couldn't let a choked hunchback down an eastern chimney with a cord and leave him upright on the hearth to terrify the sultan's purveyor. The golden sounds of the overture to the first metropolitan pantomime, I remember, were alloyed by Mr. Barlow. 
Click, click, ting, ting, bang, bang, weedle, 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 bang. I recall the chilling air that ran across my frame and cooled my hot delight as a thought occurred to me. This would never do for Mr. Barlow. After the curtain drew up, dreadful doubts of Mr. Barlow's considering the costumes of the nymphs of the nebula as being sufficiently opaque obtruded themselves on my enjoyment. In the clown I perceived two persons, one a fascinating, unaccountable creature of a hectic complexion, joyous in spirits, though feeble in intellect, with flashes of brilliancy, the other a pupil for Mr. Barlow. I thought how Mr. Barlow would secretly rise early in the morning and butter the pavement for him, and when he had brought him down would look severely out of his study window and ask him how he enjoyed the fun. I thought how Mr. Barlow would heat all the pokers in the house and singe him with the whole collection to bring him better acquainted with the properties of incandescent iron on which he, Barlow, would fully expatiate. I pictured Mr. Barlow's instituting a comparison between the clown's conduct at his studies, drinking up the ink, licking his copy-book, and using his head for blotting paper, and that of the already mentioned young prig of prigs, Harry, sitting at the Barlovian feet, sneakingly pretending to be in rapture of youthful knowledge. I thought how soon Mr. Barlow would smooth the clown's hair down, instead of letting it stand erect in three tall tufts, and how, after a couple of years or so with Mr. Barlow, he would keep his legs close together when he walked, and would take his hands out of his big, loose pockets, and wouldn't have a jump left in him. That I am particularly ignorant what most things in the universe are made of, how they are made, is another of my charges against Mr. Barlow. With a dread upon me of developing into a Harry, and with a further dread upon me of being Barlowed, if I made inquiries, by bringing down upon myself a cold shower bath of explanations and experiments, I forbore enlightenment in my youth, and became, as they say in melodramas, the wreck you now behold. That I consorted with idlers and dunces is another of the melancholy facts for which I hold Mr. Barlow responsible. That pragmatical prig, Harry, became so detestable in my sight that, he being reported studious in the South, I would have fled idle to the extremest North. Better to learn misconduct from a master mash than science and statistics from a Sanford. So I took the path which, but for Mr. Barlow, I might never have trodden. Thought I, with a shudder, Mr. Barlow is a bore, with an immense constructive power of making bores. His prized specimen is a bore. He seeks to make a bore of me. That knowledge is power I am not prepared to gainsay, but with Mr. Barlow, knowledge is power to bore. Therefore, I took refuge in the caves of ignorance, wherein I have resided ever since, and which are still my private address. But the weightiest charge of all my charges against Mr. Barlow is that he still walks the earth in various disguises, seeking to make a Tommy of me, even in my maturity. Irrepressible, instructive monomaniac, Mr. Barlow fills my life with pitfalls, and lies hiding at the bottom to burst out upon me when I least expect him. A few of these dismal experiences of mine shall suffice. Knowing Mr. Barlow to have invested largely in the moving panorama trade, and having on various occasions identified him in the dark, with a long wand in his hand, holding forth in his old way, made more appalling in this connection by sometimes cracking a piece of Mr. Carlyle's own Dead Sea fruit in mistake for a joke. I systematically shun pictorial entertainment on rollers. 
Similarly, I should demand responsible bail and guarantee against the appearance of Mr. Barlow, before committing myself to attendance at any assemblage of my fellow creatures where a bottle of water and a notebook were conspicuous objects. For in either of those associations I should expressly expect him, but such is the designing nature of the man, that he steals in where no reasoning precaution or provision could expect him, as in the following case. Adjoining the caves of ignorance is a country town. In this country town the Mississippi Mamases, nine in number, were announced to appear in the town hall, for the general delectation, this last Christmas week. Knowing Mr. Barlow to be unconnected with the Mississippi, though holding Republican opinions, and deeming myself secure, I took a stall. My object was to hear and see the Mississippi Mamases in what the bills described as their national ballads, plantation breakdowns, nigger part songs, choice conundrums, sparkling repartees, and C. I found the nine dressed alike in the black coat and trousers, white waistcoat, very large shirt front, very large shirt collar, and very large white tie and wristbands, which constitute the dress of the mass of the African race and which has been observed by travelers to prevail over a vast number of degrees of latitude. All the nine rolled their eyes exceedingly, and had very red lips. At the extremities of the curve they formed, seated in their chairs, were the performers on the tambourine and bones. The center momus, a black of melancholy aspect, who inspired me with a vague uneasiness for which I could not then account performed on a mississippi instrument closely resembling what was once called in this island a hurdy-gurdy the momuses on either side of him had each another instrument peculiar to the father of waters which may be likened to a stringed weather glass held upside down there were likewise a little flute and a violin all went well for a while and we had had several sparkling repartees exchanged between the performers on the tambourine and bones when the black of melancholy aspect turning to the latter and addressing him in a deep and improving voice as bones sir delivered certain grave remarks to him concerning the juvenile's president and the season of the year whereon i perceived that i was in the presence of mr barlow corked another night and this was in london i attended the representation of a little comedy as the characters were lifelike and consequently not improving and as they went upon their several ways and designs without personally addressing themselves to me i felt rather confident of coming through it without being regarded as tommy the more so as we were clearly getting close to the end but i deceived myself all of a sudden apropos of nothing everybody concerned came to a check and halt advanced to the footlights in a general rally to take dead aim at me, and brought me down with a moral homily, in which I detected the dread hand of Barlow. Nay, so intricate and subtle are the toils of this hunter, that on the very next night after that I was again entrapped, where no vestige of a spring could have been apprehended by the timidest. It was a burlesque that I saw perform an uncompromising burlesque where everybody concerned but especially the ladies carried on at a very considerable rate indeed most prominent and active among the corps performers was what i took to be and she really gave me very fair opportunities of coming to a right conclusion a young lady of a pretty figure she was dressed as a picturesque young gentleman whose pantaloons had been cut off in their infancy and she had very neat knees and very neat satin boots Immediately after singing a slang song and dancing a slang dance, this engaging figure approached the fatal lamps and, bending over them, 
delivered in a thrilling voice a random eulogium on an exhortation to pursue the virtues great heavens was my exclamation barlow there is still another aspect in which mr barlow perpetually insists on my sustaining the character of tommy which is more unendurable yet on account of his extreme aggressiveness for the purposes of a review or newspaper he will get up an abstruse subject with definite pains will barlow utterly regardless of the price of midnight oil and indeed of everything else save cramming himself to the eyes but mark when mr barlow blows his information off he is not contented with having rammed it home and discharged it upon me tommy his target but he pretends that he was always in possession of it and made nothing of it that he imbibed it with mother's milk and that i the wretched tommy and most abjectly behindhand in not having done the same i ask why is tommy to be always the foil of mr barlow to this extent what mr barlow had not the slightest notion of himself a week ago it surely cannot be any very heavy backsliding in me not to have at my fingers ends to-day and yet mr barlow systematically carries it over me with a high hand and will tauntingly ask me in his articles whether it is possible that i am not aware that every schoolboy knows that the fourteenth turning on the left in the steppes of russia will conduct to such and such a wandering tribe with other disparaging questions of like nature so when mr barlow addresses a letter to any journal as a volunteer correspondent which i frequently find him doing he will previously have gotten somebody to tell him some tremendous technicality and will write in the coolest manner now sir i may assume that every reader of your columns possessing average information and intelligence knows as well as i do that say that the draught from the touch-hole of a cannon of such a calibre bears such a proportion in the nicest fractions to the draught from the muzzle or some equally familiar little fact but whatever it is be certain that it always tends to the exaltation of mr barlow and the depression of his enforced and enslaved pupil mr barlow's knowledge of my own pursuits i find to be so profound that my own knowledge of them becomes as nothing mr barlow disguised and bearing a feigned name but detected by me has occasionally taught me in a sonorous voice from end to end of a long dinner-table trifles that i took the liberty of teaching him five-and-twenty years ago my closing article of impeachment against mr barlow is that he goes out to breakfast goes out to dinner goes out everywhere high and low and that he will preach to me and that i can't get rid of him he makes me a promethean tommy bound and he is the vulture that gorges itself upon the liver of my uninstructed mind End of chapter thirty four recording by ginger cucolo washington d c